your branding badass, and welcome to Season 2 of Branding Matters. My guest today is Ron Tite, founder and chief creative officer of Church and State, an agency that unifies content and advertising. He's also a best-selling author, speaker, and entrepreneur who has created award-winning work for some of the world's most iconic brands, including Air France, Evian, Fidelity Investments, Johnson & Johnson, Microsoft, and Volvo, just to name a few. I invited Ron to be a guest on my show to discuss how brands navigate the blurry lines between advertising and content. I wanted to learn what the integrity gap is all about, and I was curious to get his point of view on why more brands are choosing purpose over profit. Ron, I'm so thrilled to have you join us today. Welcome to Branding Matters. Thanks, Jolie. It is so incredible to be here. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate <laughs> you saying that. You have quite the career. I did a little bit of research on you. You were that your best-selling author, your speaker, your podcast host. I want to hear about that. Advertising copywriter, crave director, entrepreneur, and this is my favorite, stand-up comic. So before we get into all that, tell me a little bit about yourself. What did you study? Where'd you go to university? What did you study in university? And how did you know what you want to be when you grew up? Like most advertising people who have done work in comedy, I, of course, did a phys ed degree at Queen's University. Love it. Um, yeah, I mean, I just really, I, you know, I, I was the first in my family to go to university. There was a whole world that existed outside of where I grew up and my kind of situation. of whole stuff. But I'm originally from Montreal, but grew up in the south end of Oshawa in the rough and tumble south end of the Schwiggity. Okay. I'm from Montreal too. West Island. And you're from the West Island? From from Dollar? Dorval. Oh, nice. Okay, good. Well, I was a Verdun kid. Oh, okay. So Oshawa is the Verdun of, of Ontario, I think. Uh, yeah. Okay. Or yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, I just didn't really know what careers existed. And they're like, what people? I didn't, you know, I had no idea. So I just saw like what kind of life would I want? The only kind of people who had a different life than the one that I was grown up in were teachers. So I was like, I, I, I'll, be a, I'll be a gym teacher because I wrestled. And okay. so I'll just do it. You know, my coach went to Queens. Like, I'll just do it, what he did. And then I got there and this whole world opened up. I'm like, what are you talking about? People don't know what they're going to, how do you know, how are you here? And you don't know what you want to do. And so it just over time, I just kind of ditched that idea and realized that, you know, my first boss told me like only rocket science is rocket science. And you can do whatever you want. And then that was so freeing to be able to go like, oh yeah, I could do anything, like anything. And so I just started to pursue things that interested me and see if I could carve out something. So I started at the Queens Business School. And then I, you know, this is the 1993, I graduated in 93. I'm 51. So I was like, this is the beginning of the web, right? Like, this is like the internet was just being born at this point. And so I started working at a web shop. So I had this, like, I could do HTML and like, I understood web creation. So I had that. And then I got a job at an agency and then I really wanted to pursue stand-up comedy. So I just, I just did that. And then all those worlds, right, just all came together. And I was like, oh, like I can be a creative guy in advertising and never ever up to that point that I ever consider myself a quote unquote creative person. Cause I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know right. people wore that hat. So how do you go, you talk about business school and then, but you also want to be a comedian. I mean, they seem so, they seem in one sense so far apart. Tell me a bit about that comedian side of things and where you went with that while simultaneously doing your career. Did you do it at the same time? I did. Yeah. There was never any like, I want to be a stand-up comedian. Right. None of that. <laughs> Cause again, I always loved the craft of stand-up. And at one point, you know, started doing some stuff at second city training center. And I was like, okay, I want to do stand-up. 
I just want to do it to do it. And I didn't think like, oh, I'm going to have a career. And like, no, I just want to do I wanted to explore it creatively. I wanted to figure out the method to the madness because I knew in my heart of hearts that the people who were funny at parties those weren't stand-up comedians. That doesn't play on stage. I knew that. The very first stand-up show I ever did, I headlined my own show. This is like, this is where this entrepreneurial perspective comes in, right? Because somebody said, if you want to be a stand-up comedian, you got to go and do open mic night. So I was like, okay. So I went to check out and I'm like, no commitment. I'm just going to go check it out. And I went, I was like, this is a shit show. This is, I don't want to be a part of this. This is horrible. That guy less to bet. That guy's drunk. Like I'm already better than everybody here. And I've never done it before. Like I just, I was pretty cocky about it. And so I went back to my friend and said, what else can I do? Cause I'm not doing that. And he's like, well, you can get to know a producer and see if they'll put you on their live show, but you've never done it before. So I don't know how they're going to do, you know? And then I just said, well, why don't I just like, how tough is it to be a producer? Why don't I just produce my own show? So I did that. Produced my own show, made myself the headliner. So the very first time I ever did stand-up comedy, I did a 45-minute headlining set. That's amazing. Was that in um, Oshawa or Montreal? It was in Toronto. I was in Toronto by that. By oh, that okay. Point. Okay. That's amazing. And um, yeah, so that's, it was such a great entrepreneurial approach to stand-up, which mm-hmm. is like, there are not just two ways to do this. Do it, you know, take on the role of driving your own agenda. Do it the way you want to do it and figure out, well, how do you do that? I was like, oh, I just become a producer. And so that same thinking went into when I used to be executive creative director at Havas, was like, ah, I want to do my own thing. Like, I want to own my own destiny. And how do you do that? Well, you produce your own show. You open your own agency and then decide where you go from there. I love that. So that was sort of a precursor for what was going to come with your career down the line. So do you have any favorite comedians? It changes every month. See new Back people, then right? when you decided. Oh, I can't really say because it was Bill Cosby. And I don't think we're supposed oh, to say okay. his name. <laughs> uh, he who can't be named. Oh, you know, when I saw Bill Cosby, this kind of mimics what launched Jerry Seinfeld because Jerry Seinfeld at one point said he used to watch Jonathan Winters and think, I can't do that. Like, that's a whole other brilliant skill that I can't do that. But he saw Robert Klein, Robert Klein telling story. And he's like, oh, I can, I can do that. So for me, it was like looking at Robin Williams, it was like, yeah, that's really great, but I can't, that's not me. But when I started digging into Bill Cosby, like this guy's just telling stories about his childhood. I think I can do that. And I was interested in pursuing that creatively. So that was the kind of the tip, like, oh, yeah, I think I can. Yeah, I didn't want to do Bill Cosby. Although in high school, the very first thing I ever performed for anybody was in grade 11 and I or grade 10. And I did Bill Cosby's The Dentist. It was a bit at Bill Cosby's bit. So I did the bit. And it was that moment on stage in front of whatever, 500 people and having a crowd laugh at something you said for the first time and thinking, how do I get more of that? Like, how do I duplicate that emotion? And I think that's so important for people. Like it's, it wasn't about how do I do the thing again? It was how do I duplicate the emotional reaction I got out of doing that? You know, and then fast forward all these years later, I was at the, performing at the Edmonton Fringe Festival and I was performing a one-man play and at one point said this line and it's a very poignant moment in the play. It's a callback to something earlier. And I went, so, hey, and it was silent. And when I said, so, hey, and this woman in the front row went, and she knew what the next line was going to be even before I said it. And that is the most powerful moment I've ever had on stage. And it was like, I've got you. I've got you where I want you. I can take you over here to ridiculously funny. I can take you over here to make you cry. I can take you over here to make you think, but I've got you in the palm of my hand emotionally right now. 
And that was so powerful. And then I was like, how do I duplicate that emotion? Because that's way more, that silence and that little intake of air was way more powerful than a standing ovation filled with laughter. Way more powerful. How did she know what the next word or next line was going to be that you were going to say? Because it was a callback to something earlier in the play. Oh, okay. And the line was, so, hey, be careful. And it was, I had made fun of my mom always saying, be careful, be careful, be careful, be careful, be careful. And the, the character makes this arc of like, he understands the value of what his mom brought. And it was, a, so, hey, and she knew it. And it was that, and I was like, I need to pursue that more. Screw comedy. I need to pursue that more. And that's what drove me into speaking, knowing that the comedy can actually set up the more important point you need to make. Just quickly, you mentioned about mothers. So were your parents, did you grow up in a family of like comedians? Like, was there a lot of laughter in your household? Not not officially comedians, no. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> I don't mean official, but I just meant, was there a lot, was laughter a part of, you know, your your surroundings? It's yeah. a great question. And yeah, yeah you know, it was, in, it was, in some ways it was, and in some ways it was completely absent. So my parents were divorced. So on my mom's side of the family was like really Italian. You know, my father, my grandfather came from Italy. So Italian Quebecois. So they were animated. They were amazing storytellers. They loved to laugh. Like they understood the art of the bit, right? Of like, if you've told this story before, you tell it again in the exact same way and you perfect the telling of the story. Yeah. And if somebody's new to the table, you go, Jimmy, tell that story, you know? But on the other hand, like my stepdad was an alcoholic. Like it was a really not a fun home life. My mom was disabled. Like there were a lot of emotional kind of challenges there. And so I think- when you combine those two worlds of like this really animated, fun-loving Italian Quebecois family with the reality of the more immediate family, it's no surprise that I went off and kind of like thought on my own. You know, it's that like I carved out that space to think in my own head of how can I survive this environment and how can I bring laughter to that and humor to that environment so that I can survive it. Because my, my mom was an incredible person, but she survived like such a horrible life. And she survived through laughing at it. And so I think I duplicated that. So on one hand, I'm really introverted because I can go and get into my own head and think about things. But then there's the like, okay, flip on the Italian in you, <laughs> yeah. hit the stage. Yeah. Now it's time to, to be animated. I love that. I love that because I, I, you know, I have this thing, it's all about the big F-U-N in the sense that the world, there's so much tragedy and things going on in the world that I always try to find the humor in things. And that's sort of a way to not only uplift other people, but uplift yourself, right? When you're yeah. dealing with things. So I love that. Okay. So thank you for sharing that with us. I appreciate it. So let's talk about church and state. So you launched church and state in 2012. So I'm really curious to know what inspired you to start it and about the name more importantly. Yeah. I mean, you know, as I said earlier, I wanted to control my own destiny. I also saw that there were two worlds being disrupted. There was like this traditional ad agency thing. And then there was also the traditional content. It was the newspapers and the TV networks. And, you know, all those people were being disrupted. And those two worlds of marketing and advertising and content are completely dependent on one another. They're completely, like literally one pays for the other. And everybody was looking and blaming big agencies and everybody was blaming big content companies, but no one was saying, you're in this together. Like you got to figure this out. And so I just thought that that's, nobody was addressing that. And so I started it as the tight group because I didn't really know. I just wanted to solve the problem. And I didn't know whether the best way to solve it was as a consulting company or as a production company or as an agency, like what? I wrote this line, the brands need to be media properties and media properties need to be brands. I was like, figure that out, whatever the hell that means. 
And so it was initially called the tight group because I didn't really know what it was going to be and what the approach was going to be. And so for the first year, I just worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. And then a good friend of mine, a guy named Bram Warshavsky, who's a wonderful entrepreneur, I mentioned the idea of church and state, that the world used to be the separation of church and state, that content and advertising did not cross over. And I just kept saying this idea of church and state. And he said, that'd be a great agency name. Hmm. And I was like, yeah, it would be a great agency name. And then I think it was like two or three years later when we finally realized this is what we do really, really well. And I said, it's church and state. It's back to that conversation I had two years ago with Bram. It's church and state. So that's where the name came from. Your listeners can't see it, but you can see the logo in my screen that it is a plus. It's not an and. It's a plus, church plus state that the worlds that used to be separate are now unified. Any ad can be a piece of content if it's good enough and interesting enough and relevant enough. Any, and of course, we share ads all the time. People tune to the Super Bowl to watch ads, their content at that point. And, but also any piece of content can actually be an ad. And you see this within the big TV networks where they're saying, go to our website. From from, that's an ad. They're driving you to their website because there's incremental revenue there. But again, we identified that it's not an ad because we've placed it in the content box. I wrote this piece once about Michael Jackson thriller as one of the best ads of all time. And we put it in the content box because it was a great video and we allowed videos to be content that we tuned in to watch. The only reason Michael Jackson made that video was because he had fallen out of the number one spot of the album charts. Thriller had fallen out of the spot. He had released all the hot singles and he had the victory tour with his brothers coming up in the summertime. And they need to ensure that the victory tour was going to be a huge success. I saw that tour actually. (laughs) No way. <laughs> yeah, I did. In Montreal. That's so funny. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. It was at the forum, right? It yeah. Been at the forum. Yeah. The yeah. old forum. The old forum. Yeah. The old forum. Yeah. Now my age is showing. I'm older than you, by the way. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, you're a badass. Exactly. Um, but, you know, it was this idea that if we just make something interesting, it will drive the sales of the Victory Tour. And that's why the Thriller video was made. It was an ad. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying that's good. People used to vote with their wallets. Now they vote with their time. And it doesn't matter what you call it. It doesn't matter what, what what box we put it in. The Globe and Mail is competing against BuzzFeed. It's competing against YouTube and Netflix. We only have so much time. We're going to read the shit that interests us, that's relevant enough, that's interesting enough, that's entertaining enough. And I don't really care who paid for it. And you can and- transfer that to now social media fast forward because... All the content that you see, I mean, realistically, it's all people trying to advertise their businesses on there, but they're doing it in a way that is not advertising traditionally, right? It's just content that we're seeing on all the different social platforms. Yeah, exactly. And if it's interesting enough to us, we're like, yeah, I'm going to consume that. Yeah. The thing I hate is when people are like, oh, people don't have an attention span anymore. Really? Because <laughs> they'll yeah. binge Netflix shows. They'll watch 20-minute TED Talks. We're just pickier. A hundred percent. Way more discerning but, you know, of what we want. It, yeah, my good friend Mitch Joel, you know, likes to say that it's, people don't hate advertising. They hate shitty advertising. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. So I want to talk about your approach because you say you're a different agency, which you clearly are. And your approach is think, do, say. Can you elaborate on that? What does that mean? The role that agencies used to play, the role that marketers used to play, you know, a large degree marketing people who were advertising focused was that let's like, just get the message out, right? Just get the messaging right. And then we all saw this huge shift where advertising started to decrease in its performance. A lot of the disruptive products were products that they didn't disrupt because of their advertising. They disrupted because of what the products did. They completely came in 
and solve problems that the, the establishment didn't solve. Or we start to look at customer experience as being the new marketing, you know, like, oh, I want just, it's all about the experience, whether that's in retail or whether that's through e-commerce, whatever it is. So as all this focus was shifting away from advertising and, you know, we realized like, look, that the brands that do really, really well align three things. They align what they think, what they do and what they say. And I know it sounds ridiculously simple and the book and the speech is kind of the corporate theater version, but we get into a really granular level when we do a strategy for a, a client and that's what we do. So the think is around, okay, fundamentally brands need to stand for something more. Consumers are exhausted from being pitch lapped. They're just getting it from all angles. The metaphor we use is they're standing in the middle of Times Square and up top, it's coming from all sides. Big, beautiful billboards, really expensive, but they have no idea where to look. So we need to elevate that conversation to something that people actually care about that goes beyond the product because we've seen this, um, the democratization of content creation has moved into this democratization of credibility that anybody can say I'm the best because of thing. Any product can say that you can use data to illuminate your strengths. So you need to go beyond that because people just don't believe it anymore. They just don't believe it. So what do you believe in? That's the think part. Secondly, if customer experience and products are the thing that actually drive brand conviction, it's not advertising. It is what the product does for you. It's the old Procter and Gamble second moment of truth. When I get it home, does this shit work? You know, like, <laughs> Does it clean yeah. my dishes? Because if it doesn't, there will be zero brand conviction, brand loyalty. So what do you do that reinforces that belief? And it's really important that you take actions that reinforce what you fundamentally believe in. Otherwise, you're just going madly off in all directions, which a lot of marketers do. Like, now we're doing a TikTok thing, or I went to a conference and this great speaker had six things. We're going to implement them all, right? It's ridiculous. My friend Warren Tomlin calls it random acts of digital. <laughs> right. Oh, I like that. So you need something to focus those actions. You need something to focus your products. You need something to focus expanding your portfolio of products and services. And that is your belief. You know, a great example here is Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga believes in something that goes beyond what she sells. She believes that people should be free to express themselves. Got it. Okay. That's what she fundamentally believes. What does she do to reinforce that belief? Well, what she does is she forces herself to express herself in a wide variety of different ways. She champions self-expression. She promotes self-expression. And she does it through music, and she does it through acting, and she does it through a makeup line, and she does it through fashion and choreography, all that stuff. So she has diversified her revenue stream, but every single product under her portfolio all ties back to that same belief. People should be free to express themselves. So when she launched her makeup line, the lead headline was Our House, your rules. That's just another way to say people should be free to express themselves. So she's diversified her portfolio, but in a really focused way. So that's the do. And then the say is, look, like if you believe in something more important and you behave in a way and create products that reinforce that, well, that is worth talking about. So if it's worth talking about, then you should talk about it in a way that's consistent with what you believe. You should talk about it in a way that's memorable, that cuts through that speaks to directly to what you believe and what you do to reinforce it. So that's the think, do, say. And when you align all three, that creates brand conviction. But and just cranking out the say, nope, not going to do it. So it's sort of like not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love that. No, that's great. So I've heard you talk about the integrity gap, 
What's the mm-hmm. integrity gap? If we all believe and do and and say things that are very similar. So everybody within an organization goes, this is what we believe in. This is my personal role to bring it to life. And this is how I talk about the organization. And we're all aligned on that. Great. All everybody's aligned. An integrity gap is when the actions of a person or a group of people contradict what the organization supposedly stands for. So if we go, you know what, we're Robin Hood, we believe in bringing investment to the masses. But then when the GameStop thing happened, and they're like, oh, no, 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 we're going to protect the head fund guys. You're like, "Mm, this is an integrity gap. Now, sometimes an integrity gap is a massive, big ordeal where 60 minutes is on the phone because someone's committed a crime. You know what I mean? Yeah. Other times, it's a little paper cut. It's like, "Mm." you know, a great example, this is Tim Hortons. You know, Tim Hortons went from being number one on the trust index to not being on the list at all, to not being on the list at all in Canada. What happened? It was a series of paper cuts. It's not like Tim Hortons came in and said, we're radically changing our business. We're radically changing the coffee. No, just slowly over time, Canadians were like, this just doesn't feel very Canadian anymore. They would just serve with the one story after one little bad experience in the Tim Hortons here or there, hearing that there was a, a fight between the franchisees and 3G, hearing that the two children of the founders who were franchisees and I mean, they're in Coburg or something, you know, like decided not to pay their staff for overtime or it, it wasn't that, but it was something like that. And people just slowly but surely, each one on its own, not a huge, massive thing, but Paper cut, paper cut, paper cut, paper cut, paper cut. And over time, it's like, it doesn't feel very Canadian anymore. Hmm. So what they were saying, all those communications, they didn't align with what was actually happening in the brand. Now, do I believe in Tim Hortons? Yes. I think it's a great brand. I think they're going to bring it back. I think they got some very smart people there who are doing the right things. But there was a point in time when Tim Hortons failed. And they failed because of a series of integrity gaps. At 3G, at the Hold Co. level, at Restaurant Brands International, the organizing company, the brand advertising level, at the franchisee level, and at the frontline staff level. Paper cuts with all four. That's never a good thing. Can you give an example of a brand that does a good job of closing that integrity gap? Yeah, you know, the example I talked about in the book, and I hate when interviews go, well, that's what I said in chapter one of the book. Which is really I love just all a, your different voices, like your different characters. It's, it's a pitch slap for people that buy my book, buy my book, right? <laughs> but, you know, I was really impressed with REI, which is a, kind of the mountain equipment co-op of the U.S. It is a co-op and they fundamentally changed like a purpose. They didn't create a campaign. It was a fundamental purpose of the organization that in their words, you know, we believe a life lived outside is a life well lived. That's what they fundamentally believe. Okay. So what do they do to reinforce that belief? Well, one, it is strategically aligned to the thing they sell. They're an outdoor equipment retailer. Of course they believe that. They don't go, we believe a life lived outside is a life well lived. So we sell Tupperware. Yeah. (laughs) So it strategically connects. Secondly, their lead initiative was when they closed the store on Black Friday because they just said, we'd rather be in the mountains than in the aisles on that particular day. And by the way, you can't buy anything on their e-commerce channels either. I remember when that happened, actually. Yeah. Yeah, there was a big thing about that. It was a big thing, but it still happens, right? Yeah. This was the thing that it wasn't just a campaign. It was a fundamental belief. So if you believe a life lived outside is a life well lived, and you say, we're going to close e-commerce channels and all of our retailers so our staff don't have to put up with the shit show that is Black Friday. Man, that communication's really easy. I mean, and I'm not trying to take away from the agency who did the work, but that is a fundamentally easier thing to communicate than 
I don't know. What if we take 10% off a pair of hiking boots? Which everybody does on Black Friday, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So their communications cut through and to the doubters in that first year, you know, revenue grew 9%, mm-hmm. uh, nine points year over year. So they thought it, they did it, and they said it. I remember when that all went down, there was a lot of publicity about it, and I thought it was very cool. And then I read afterwards that they actually made money because of that, you know, that whole thing about their purpose. Which brings me to my next question. I've heard you say when you choose purpose over product, that's when profit flows. Is that what you're referring to when you talk about this example? Yeah, 100%. Because most people in that case would have said, oh, but don't, don't believe in that on Black Friday. Because you're, you're giving up your revenue from Black Friday and nobody gives up revenue from the busiest <laughs> retail day of the year. Are you crazy? Yeah, yeah. Another great example of that was John Stewart. When John Stewart appeared on a show called Crossfire, which was the original Tucker Carlson show on CNN. And it was 2004. And your listeners right now are like, 2004? Boy, this guy's coming at us with the most contemporary, up-to-date <laughs> information. Because I think this is when the world changed. In 2004, John Stewart at a top-rated show, The Daily Show. He had a book that had been out, but he was on a guest on CNN, which was a larger audience than he would have ever had on the Comedy Central. And Tucker Carlson and Paul Begali had him on. And we usually know how comedians do interviews. They manipulate the conversation so they can come up with their best material, right? They, mm-hmm. We all see them do this every night. They do this. And it's because they want to sell. They want to give you a taste of their best material so that you'll watch their Netflix special or go see them live, whatever. But on this night, John Stewart said to Tucker Carlson, public alley, like, you're harming America. And Tucker Carlson said, geez, John, you're not being very funny. And then John Stewart said the nine words, I think that fundamentally changed comedy and changed branding because he said, no, no, I'm not going to be your monkey. So in that moment, John Stewart had the biggest audience he'd ever had. He had a book and a show to sell, among other things. And most people would have just gone down the road and done their material. John Stewart said, there is a purpose to my material. There's something that inspires me to be funny. And that thing, it's way more important than the jokes. Way more important. And so here on this show, I'm not going to be your monkey. And so he chose purpose over profit. He chose purpose over product. He chose purpose over punchline. And if you look back, that's when the profit flowed. That's when the entire genre of news parody blew up. And now we got Trevor Noah, we got Samantha B, we got John Oliver, we have Hassan Minhaj. Like it's the whole category blew up because people understood that comedians who were driven by a sense of purpose, who didn't need to get laughs at every beat, but who actually back to that original Fringe Festival Edmonton, that moment I had on stage, right? That it's actually way more powerful. The moments of silence that follow the comedy are way more powerful than the lines of comedy ever will be. That's amazing. And probably because the audience could really connect with him then, right? Like he's not just this persona, you know, doing a shtick, but he's actually a real person who actually really cares about things that I care about. And then they make that connection. And maybe that- He he opened himself up. He made himself vulnerable. You know, when you look back at some of the, you know, when you look back at David Letterman's career, you go, okay, what are the top five moments in David Letterman's thing, right? There's a couple that are stuff where he's really funny, but you really look at the top moments when he really galvanized his place in the hearts and minds of people. Returning from 9-11, David Letterman is the first guy to go on air. No jokes. Returning from his heart attack, his heart surgery, bringing on the doctors to thank them. Not funny. Him really kind of taking guests to task for being idiots. Not funny. It's those moments where you're like, this is when this guy really solidified his place. And he's a comedian. 
I think that's a huge message for brands that you really need to be vulnerable. You need to be driven by something that goes beyond the thing you sell. Cause who really, like who really gives a shit about the thing you sell? I mean, really very few people, most products are commodities. We can get in other places and other forms. That's very true. I love that. Okay. So I want to talk about one more thing before you go your podcast. It's called the coop. That's right. So from one podcaster to another, what yeah. inspired you to start your podcast and what's that about? So whenever I give a speech, I do something called the new two and it's always two new minutes. I'm, I'm always exploring stuff in the moment on stage or virtually like this. I always need to be testing myself with new stuff and exploring. So there's always new two minutes. So I was giving a speech once and I just said on stage, Netflix disrupting Blockbuster. It wasn't disruption. It was a coup of the entertainment space where the establishment was taken out by an insurgent force. And I just said that. And then I went back and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So for the next speech, I started looking at rebellious anti-establishment songs. I'm like, what are some anti-establishment songs? And I had that be the new two. And as I was delivering that, one of the songs was The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. And I thought that's such a great, if there was a theme song we we're going through, that's it. The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. And then out of that, it became like, hmm, maybe we can actually look at what goes into a successful coup d'etat, a political coup d'etat. What happens? The establishment gets out of touch with the reality of the masses Insurgent forces start to light their torches. They start to gather momentum. They start to get people on their side. It's very grassroots. And then at one point they go, we're storming the castle at midnight. We're, we're beheading the establishment and we're going and we're going to take them out. There's a series of chaos and anarchy that ensues. There's a power vacuum. And then there's some sort of return to stability. That's exactly what happens in business. Exactly what happens in business. Gillette and Schick get a little bit out of touch, right? Razor blades go through the roof. They're 40 bucks. You're behind lock and key. Nobody says a thing because they're just their heads in the sand. They don't get it. Insurgent forces go, this is bullshit. We're paying 40 bucks for blades. There's no way. I get these things once a month. I don't need to go in. Dollar Shave Club starts to go. An entrepreneur goes, I'm going to solve that problem. I'm going to make a blade. Can I make a blade for a buck? Yeah, I can do it. Build steam over time. They go, all right, we're going live. We're going to take you out. And then eventually, right, they just become new members of the establishment. Yeah. So I looked at that and said that the idea of the coup is either a book, it's a speech, it's a, it's a thing. And so I started writing it as a book and then I thought, mm -mm, I want to do this as a podcast, but not a podcast like this. I wanted to do 10 episodes. That's it. Not having guests on but having like interviews with three or Not four Not that there's people. anything wrong with having guests on. <laughs> no, no, no. I just, no, you know what? To be honest, I didn't think that I could do it. I didn't oh, think I that I could do it in a way that was good enough. I thought, man, that requires like, you're committed to this. Like oh, yeah. every week you're launching. And I thought, I don't have that level of commitment. I want to do 10 episodes. I want to hire people to come in. So I hired a team of people. And so we, and we did the 10 episodes. We won best business podcast in Canada. We beat the globe, we beat the post. Amazing. And then I was like, okay. I'll need to do it again. Great. I want that. And so that's, so it exists in, with Roger's frequency as 10 episodes, highly produced, great production value. And that's it. Amazing. I love your story. I feel like I could sit and talk to you forever. So last thing I lied, I do have yeah. one more. I have one more question. You have two kids. You had your second son, I think, what was it? A couple months before you turned 50. You've done your research. So you are like Bully. the, you are like the George Clooney of the ad world. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, am I right in that sense? Yeah, yes. Our second child was born two days into the pandemic in 2020 when I was turning 50. So how's it going? How's fatherhood when? What's your favorite?
favorite thing about becoming a dad? I absolutely love it. I I didn't get married till I was 43. And I just, you know, I didn't think I was going to get married. I was 43. I was single. I had never been married. I was like, all right, this isn't happening, which is totally okay. fine. I loved being single. It was a great life. Yeah, you kind of look like George Clooney too. You got like the salt and pepper, <laughs> yeah. and I can oh, see that. <laughs> I think I think is this is this is this must be low Wi-Fi or something because I do not look like George. <laughs> and you're like, who's George Clooney's ugly cousin? You're oh. like, ah, oh, that's me. That's right. No. You know, I didn't have the greatest role models. Is you know, I actually wrote a piece on this that you know, my dad and my stepdad were given the titles of father, and they're both really shitty at it. Hmm. But the people who weren't given the title of fathers, like my brothers and sister and my uncles and aunts and friends and teachers and stuff, they were amazing, amazing role models. And so it fills me with joy that I get to hang out with these two kids and be somewhat of a role model in their lives. And yeah, I didn't expect it to happen. So every smile, every laugh, every scream is cherished like you wouldn't believe. That's amazing. Well, congratulations. So if people want to learn more about Ronte and about church and stay, are you on social media? What's the best way to connect with you? The best part of having a name that's only seven letters, first and last <laughs> name, is just it's just Rontite everywhere. So Facebook Google slash Rontite, Instagram Rontite, fa- yeah, LinkedIn, Ron, uh, it's all there. Okay. And um, you're an amazing speaker, by the way. I've seen some of your videos and I love oh, the thanks, way you Julie. use comedy to, I think, you know, people learn, I think you can learn through entertainment versus, you know, educational through entertainment, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I think yeah. the way you do your speeches and your presentations, they're funny. And I think it sinks in a lot more and they're really enjoyable. So yeah. Well, thank I'm you. That's- so if you're listening out there, check out his videos because they're awesome. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate you being on here. Like I said, I can't believe the time is up already, but I know you, you have to go. So hopefully we'll chat again soon. That'd be awesome. When I'm in Calgary, I'll give you a, a dingle. Is that what Definitely. you say these days? That would give you a dingle. Great to meet you. Have a wonderful rest of your day and we will talk soon. Thanks, Jolie. And thanks for everybody for listening. Bye. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe learned a few things to help you with your branding. But most of all, I hope you had some fun. This show is a work in progress, so please remember to rate and review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. And if you want to learn more about me and what I do to help my clients with their branding, feel free to reach out to me on any of the social channels under, you guessed it, Branding Badass. Branding Matters was produced, edited, and hosted by Jolie Goodson, also me. So thanks again, and until next time, here's to all you badasses out there.